0: Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again this Sunday. I had so much fun last Sunday for Father's Day. For those of you who were here in person, we cooked uh, 100 pounds of bacon, and I, I loved every bit of it. Uh, we didn't have any leftover for anybody else, but I really enjoyed the 100 pounds of bacon that I ate. Now, I, I appreciated uh, all of you showing up for Bacon Sunday. This was the first year where Father's Day was almost as, as packed as Mother's Day at the church. Uh, because bacon will do that for people. But um, thanks especially to all of you who brought a friend along. I met so many folks who are visiting for the first time, and I appreciate you being a church that invites people, a church that invites people and is willing to try uh, new things and uh, out-of-the-box things. And so, appreciate that and had a great time with you last weekend. Um, Don't forget, we're going to do something a little out-of-the-box next weekend. Next weekend, Sunday, is the 4th of July, and we're not sure what people's schedules look like on Sunday, the 4th of July, coming out of a pandemic during summer season. So we're going to try something a little different and see if this works. For those of you who are joining us in person on July 4th, we're going to have one service at 10 a.m. in person. We'll still have an online service at 10 a.m. So if you're an online watcher anyway, you can still watch online at the usual time. But for those of you who are in-person attenders, there's just going to be one service on Sunday, July 4th at 10 a.m. And after that, we'll go back to our two-service time. So that's next weekend. Uh, And uh, so don't come early, or you can have a long prayer time by yourself in the parking lot, and uh, don't come late, or uh, you can take our donuts to go. You could join our Japanese congregation that worships on Sunday afternoon if you do that. Anyway, uh, that's a long announcement. Okay, so we're in a uh, series of teachings now on the weekends called Know What I Like About Jesus. And each week, we're looking at a different element of the life or teaching or character of Jesus that's just compelling. That's just attractive. It's, just, it's, it's something uh, that's just lovable about Jesus. And I, and I started the series by saying it's kind of like when I used to take my uh, son out to eat. If we went to a, a restaurant, he would look at the menu and go, I don't like anything on here. And the truth was he had not tried anything that was on the menu. He just was very resistant to trying new things. And so if we took him to like a buffet, we'd say, just try anything. You'll find something you like. And uh, this has been true in every uh, situation where I have talked to somebody about Jesus who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't follow Jesus. There's going to be something about him that you like, that you find compelling, that you find attractive, that you find irresistible. And so each week in this series, we're looking at different elements of the life, character, and teachings of Jesus that are, that are just compelling. And I want to look at a, a unique one today uh, that really comes out of the world that we live in today. Um, If you look at 20th century philosophy, 20th century philosophy around the world has focused on how we know things and what can we know, and why do different people seem to disagree about what can be known and what the facts facts are. And certainly, uh, coming out of a pandemic with the 2020 hindsight that we now have, we can see not everybody sees the world the same way, right? If you go back... Go back two, three hundred years, there was a period in Western history called the Enlightenment where people said, hey, I bet if we use reason, we can all come to believe the same things because reason will reveal the truth. Well, that, that predominated in the modern era, but it came clear in the 20th century that sometimes people with uh, money and power tend to uh, try to enforce the way they think. See things as being reasonable on everybody else, and certain voices that were not as loud or strong uh, tended to get silenced and pushed to the side and so it sort of became a question of whether or not anything can be seen objectively as as uh, objectively true for everybody uh, just because you look at it reasonably uh, and i saw I, I saw something uh, recently uh, that, that sort of captured that for me. And it was, it was fascinating to me. Uh, they did an experiment at a university in England. It was uh, the University of Plymouth in England, which is actually a, a well-reputed university. And uh, they, their study appeared in a journal called Current Biology. And uh, they did a, a psychological experiment on how people see things. And, and I'm going to set this one up for you. They, they, um, they showed an image to people, and it had a table in it. And on the, on the table was uh, a number that had to go a certain way, like the number four. You know, if the number four is backwards, you can tell it's backwards. Uh, you know, the number eight, you can flip either way, and it looks the same. But the four has to go a certain way. And if you get it backwards, it looks backwards. And they would they'd show a number four on the screen, and you could look at the number four, and you could say, yeah, that's, that's right, or no, that's backwards. But then they would put it on a table, and it was facing in the other direction. So it'd be from the perspective you're looking now, the four would be over here, and it'd either be forwards or backwards. And if you're looking at the picture, you, you kind of have to turn your head and go, I can't tell if that four is backwards or if it's right side. I don't, I don't know which it is. But then they would show exactly the same picture with the, the number four there, and they would put an image of a person sitting at the table in front of the number four looking at it. And when, the, when that image appeared with someone else looking at it, the people viewing the image knew immediately, ah, the four is backwards. Or ah, the four is the the right way. Because they could see somebody staring at it from the correct angle. And seeing someone else look at it from the correct angle made them able to see it correctly. Uh, Their their, uh, accuracy in saying whether it was forwards or backwards improved, and their speed of being able to assess whether or not it was forwards or backwards uh, uh, accelerated. And what that told the researchers was that we gain from looking at the world through someone else's eyes. We benefit from trying to see how other people see the world. And in doing that, in trying to look through someone else's eyes at the world, we're actually far more often to get it right than if we only look at it through our own eyes. And so today, I want to talk about what Jesus does to our vision. You know what I like about Jesus? He opens my eyes and I wanna show you how today. Let's start with prayer. Father, I thank you that you love us and I thank you that uh, you are the author of all truth. And as as we lean into you, as we love you, as we follow you, you open our eyes to the truth. More and more help us to see the world the way it is, the world the way you made it and the world the way you want it to be. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, uh, open with me in your Bibles if you would. Turn them on, open them up, whatever it is you do in your home. Look at Luke chapter 10, and we're gonna look at a famous uh, interaction that Jesus has with a couple of sisters uh, and the, uh, the way Jesus uh, describes what they're doing. This is in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 38, and this is Jesus at the home Uh, True to life story. If you have a sibling, uh, you you know what this feels like. Um, now look at this. This is kind of interesting. Martha is talking to Jesus. What do you call it when you talk to Jesus? When you wake up in the morning and you talk to Jesus, what is that? Uh, when you're about to sit down to dinner with your friends or family and you talk to Jesus, what is that? That's a prayer. And so what Martha is doing right here is she's praying. Jesus, tell my sister to help me. And how does Jesus answer her prayer? He says, no. I mean, he, he doesn't grant her prayer. Because sometimes Jesus says no to prayers that aren't asking for exactly the right thing. And that's what happens here. Martha says to Jesus, hey, I want Mary to stop paying attention to you and start paying attention to what I'm paying to, attention to. And Jesus says, no. And that's why when we pray, we have to pray with open hands. We pray and we say, Jesus, here's what I want. Here's what I need. Here's how I think the world should be. Here's where I want to go. But my hands are open. Place in my hands what you think I should have. Place in my hands what you think I need. And I'll, I'll trust that to you. If what I'm asking for is not the right thing for me, don't put it in my hands. And when you put something in my hands, I'm not going to close my hands around it and try to keep it. I'll leave my hands open and let you put and take what you need when you need it. We pray with open hands because Jesus knows what's best for us. Now Jesus answers Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Uh, and the word that Jesus uses for worried here is merimnas which is the same word he uses in Matthew chapter six, where he says, don't worry about your life. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about your wear. Uh, Life is more important than that. And he uses the same word here. Martha, you're doing that thing that I said not to do. Don't worry about your life, right? Same word. Uh, You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, there has been an enormous amount of conversation historically about Mary and Martha and what they wanted and what they stood for. The church has really debated over this passage, in part because there are so many Marthas in the churches. And it seems like, seems like Jesus shoos her away. And so from the very beginning, there was debate about what Mary and Martha's significance were to this story. There was an early church father named Origen, And Origen said, Mary and Martha represent stages in the life of faith, and Martha is a stage, but you have to grow past the stage of being Martha towards the stage of being Mary, past the stage of getting things done in the world towards the stage of simply contemplating the life of Jesus. That was one early take. Um, It didn't last very long, though. Uh, Another one of the early church fathers, Augustine, in about uh, 400 AD, would say, uh, in order for uh, Mary to sit calmly in port, Martha had to set sail, right? Martha had to be about the business of getting the ship going in order for Mary to just sit and listen. Uh, Augustine tried to elevate the value of, of Mary's presence uh, in the interaction after Jesus tells her she's after the wrong thing. Uh, another uh, early church father, uh, St. Benedict, uh, in about 500 AD, Benedict was one of the first, the founders of the first uh, monasteries as we knew them in the Middle Ages, one of the great uh, monastic leaders. And he wrote a little tiny book that you can get today at Amazon or wherever you buy books uh, called The The Rule of St. Benedict. And it's a tiny little 50-page book about that, but you really ought to read it. It's fascinating. It was the foundation for a lot of the lives of the monasteries throughout the Middle Ages. And uh, Benedict tried to elevate Martha even further. And Benedict said, don't forget, Mary and Martha are sisters, meaning the spiritual life is a pairing of contemplation and action. The spiritual life, the life dedicated to God, dedicated to Jesus is a pairing of Mary and Martha. It's a pairing of sitting and contemplating the life of Jesus, but also living faithfully to do what needs to be done. Now that was Benedict who founded an order of uh, monasteries called the Benedictine monks. And there are Benedictine monks, monks all over the world today. They're actually in uh, 15 of the United States. There are still Benedictine monasteries. There's one in California, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and the, the Benedictine monasteries spread all over Europe after Benedict. And one of the biggest ones was in a French city called Cluny. And you may not have never heard of the monastery at Cluny, but in the Middle Ages, everybody had heard of the monastery at Cluny. It was like the center of spiritual activity. And I kid you not, it was so important that when the Pope wanted to do something important, he had to call the abbot of Cluny and ask permission. He'd be all like, "Boop boop boop boop, can I have some money?" Uh, no, no, it's the Middle Ages, so it's more like, "Can I have some money?" That's how phones were in the Middle Ages when I was a kid. Uh, But anyway, the the monastery at Cluny grew big and and famous and wealthy and everybody knew about it. And people began to accuse the monks there of being lazy because they were so wealthy, so successful. People said, they're not not serious anymore. They're not devout anymore. And so a group of monks split off from Cluny and went and started a new monastery uh, in a city called Citeaux. And so they were called the Cistercians. And uh, one of the most famous of the uh, Cistercians uh, was uh, was a guy named uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. And Bernard said this about Mary and Martha. He said, action and contemplation live together in one house on equal terms. Martha is Mary's sister. And he said, in his sermon, he said, so it's no problem for me to stop, no, to interrupt my contemplation to write a sermon to you, right? It's, it's no problem for me to stop being Mary for a second so I can be Martha and serve the, the monastery by, uh, by writing a sermon. So all the way through the, the Middle Ages, Mary and Martha became this, this centerpiece of debate over what spirituality is all about. Because there were monks who just wanted to dedicate their lives to being like Mary, just contemplating Jesus and give up uh, wor- uh, worldly work. And there were movements within the monasteries that said, "No, you still have to be dedicated to hard work. you can't just settle in you can't just you can't spend life just praying and doing nothing. You have to be about the business of of serving the world as well. Spirituality is about contemplation and action. Um, it occurs to me as i as I uh, study this passage and I think about this passage we we need Mary's and Martha's in the world uh, and in the church. So if you are a Martha uh, and you like to make sure things get done because they need to get done. Thank you for being Martha. Thank you for being somebody who cares about getting things done. And if you're, if you're a Mary, if you could just spend the day praying and reading the Bible, thank you for being Mary. Uh, we, need, we need Marys in the church too. What I think we have to see in the, the Mary and Martha interaction here is not that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. I think one of them has to come first. I think Mary has to come first. Because Martha is looking at the world. And Mary is trying to look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. And if we look at the world through the eyes of Jesus, we're going to see it differently than if we're simply looking through our own eyes. And I think that's the, the lesson that we gain from the house of Mary and Martha on that day. It's not that, Mary, it's not that Martha doesn't count. It's that Jesus says, one thing matters. And Mary's, Mary's done it. And it won't be taken from her. In order to go about the business of spiritual action, we have to take on spiritual contemplation first. We have to look at the world through the eyes of Jesus before we can take on our responsibilities in the world like Martha. Um, it reminded me of um, a few weeks ago, I was at uh, one of the, the pantries uh, over here in Pomona, and um, give out food on Wednesday afternoons, and uh, drop it in people's cars in their trunks as they drive by, uh, and I, was, I always talk to the people who are there working. Uh, sometimes I pray with them, sometimes I just get to know them, uh, but it, they're kind of fascinating because they come from all over the place, uh, and you sort of have a spiritual sense that, that some of them have really been led to be there, and there are reasons why they're there. Uh, And I ended up in a conversation a few weeks ago with a woman who was there because she was doing community service hours. Uh, A court had assigned her to do a certain number of hours that she had to have signed off in order that she could fulfill her obligation to the court. And it was interesting because as I talked to her, it was very clear. She knew how many hours she had to fulfill, and she was trying to get them done so she could leave. She was trying to check the box. She had to do a certain number of hours of work, and that's all she was going to do. And once it was done, it was done. And I thought about all the hearts in that room packaging up groceries and putting them in cars. And I thought about all the Christians who go down there and volunteer to give out food, and they're not fulfilling an obligation, and they don't get paid for it, and they don't have any reason to be there other than the fact that they think they're supposed to and that God will bless the work. And it's so different to go and volunteer in a ministry without hoping that it comes to an end because you're trying to get it done versus going there because you have a certain number of hours that you need to do and you really want it to be done. It's such a different mindset and such a different matter of the heart. It's the difference between getting Martha first and getting Mary first. Martha wants to get it done because it needs to be done and the task is annoying and she wants somebody else to help because it's a burden. Mary wants to look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. And in looking at the world through the eyes of Jesus, we're sent out to serve and love the world. And I I think that's the lesson at the house of Mary and Martha. You know what I like about Jesus? He opens our eyes. He teaches us how to see. He wants us to go and serve actively in the world, to be active, to, to be Martha, to care for things that need caring for, but he wants us to stop first and look at the world through his eyes. There are different kinds of, different stages of vision that we go through as we're growing up. When we're little, we look around the world, and the first thing we realize is we have vision, we see the world out there, Uh, I can uh, can see the world, I see see you, That's, that's vision, you see me, that's vision. Pretty soon after that, in terms of a child's developmental psychology, even in that first year, we start to realize that we have feelings, we start to look inside of ourselves. That's called introspection. And then pretty soon thereafter, before a kid is two years old, and maybe even before they're one year year old, a child realizes that someone else is looking at them and having feelings about them. I see you seeing me. And that's called self-consciousness. It's where our pride and our shame comes from. First I see, that's vision. Then I see me, that's introspection. Then I see you seeing me. And that's self-consciousness. And then... I realize I can see the world through you. And that's called empathy. And psychologists have an amazing gift of giving us vision to be able to see through someone else, right? Empathy is what we're made for. It's where compassion comes from. I see you, and then I see me, and then I see you seeing me, and then I realize I can see through your eyes. And when I see through your eyes, it helps set the world straight. It helps me see the world the way it really is. And it arises in me, compassion. Now, somewhere along the way, and for some of us, it's earlier. And for some of us, it's much later. But somewhere along the way, I see God. I realize there's a God out there. And maybe I'm overtaken by the wonders of nature. Or maybe I read the Bible for the first time and I discover Jesus. But I see God. That's called revelation. And then... If I read the story of Jesus and I get to know the life of Jesus, I see Jesus seeing me and that's called faith. When you realize how much he loves you and you realize that's all you want, that's called faith. But the life of faith doesn't stop there. I see Jesus seeing me and then I realize I can look through the eyes of Jesus and see you. I see you through Jesus' eyes, and that's called ministry. And then sometimes I can see the world through Jesus' eyes, maybe just a little bit, in a way that's incredible. And that's called prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, pray for the spiritual gifts, but if you're going to pray for any of them, pray for prophecy. Because prophecy is the ability to hear what God has to say, to see the world through God's eyes, and then be able to tell the world, this is what God is saying. And 1 Corinthians says this is to, to love people and encourage them and strengthen them and build them up. When you can speak God's words of love to someone else in a way that is clearly from God and not you, that is so powerful and humbling and empowering and loving. If I can see the world through Jesus' eyes, I can tell the world how much Jesus loves us all. And that's a gift. I see God, that's called revelation. I see God seeing me, that's called faith. I see God seeing you, that's called ministry. And sometimes I see God seeing the world. I see the world through Jesus' eyes. And that's called prophecy. Uh, and I'll tell you something about um, your pastor that I've never told you before. I don't know why. This is just a story we haven't come across before, but I'm pretty sure I've never told you this. Um, I grew up going to Sunday school classes and youth groups where they tried to make you come up with a vision for your life. And I always felt like, I don't, I don't really want to. I kind of like just want to enjoy life. I don't really need a, like a, a rule book for it. Like, no, 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 you're going to draw a shield and the shield is going to be your life's design, and you're going to put different pictures on it, and they're going to represent who you're going to be. I was like, I really don't, I don't want to do that. But there came a night where I prayed for what I think is my life's vision. It was back when I lived in Hawaii, which is certainly a place that will give you a vision for heaven. And uh, I remember, I remember distinctly, I was, I was outside and I was, I was lying on the ground at night under the palm trees in the moonlight, if you can picture that. I'm in the full moon. I can see the palm trees blowing overhead. I'm lying down. It's beautiful, comfortable, warm weather. And there's, um, if, if, you've ever, if you've ever laid down under palm trees and listened, you know there's a moment where the, the wind blows through them and it sounds like voices whispering. And for some reason at that moment, I was drawn to pray And I prayed, Jesus, I wanna see the world the way you see it and be able to tell people what you see. And I think that's as close as I've ever come to naming my life's mission. That's really what I want more than anything else. I wanna see the world the way Jesus sees it and then be able to say, hey, everybody come look at this. Um, and I, I didn't have the vocabulary for it back then, but I think that's what you call prophecy. Being able to see the world through Jesus' eyes, being able to tell the world, this is what Jesus sees. So um, so I've got a sort of a homework assignment for you. It's a real easy one. Um, often I'll give you a homework assignment that's, that's more like Martha, right? Go feed the poor, go read the Bible, uh, or, you know, stop sinning, you big, naughty sinners, whatever it is, right? I'll send you out with a homework assignment, but I, I have a, an easier one for you, but more important. Um, I want you to spend time contemplating this week, and I want you to contemplate two things. I want you first to contemplate what you look like through the eyes of Jesus. And I'll give you i give you sort of a my read on this. I remember years ago, uh, I was going through the mail uh, that comes to the house and I was, you know, I read the mail over the trash can, right? You know what I mean? You open the trash can, you're, you're reading the mail and throwing it in as fast as you can. Because if you can get to like the, the catalogs and mailers that are going to other people in your house before they see them, you can save a lot of money. And so I'm going through the mail and throwing mail away, throwing junk mail away. And I come to this little, um, you know, uh, card that's sent out in bulk mail to all the houses and I throw it away. And you know, it flutters down to the bottom of the trash can, it lands in the bottom of the trash can. And on the back of this little postcard were these black and white pictures, these two profile shots of these two kids. And the words next to it said, have you seen me? And it was kids who were lost. And some parent was looking for them and had sent out this advertisement to as many houses as they could send it to. And I looked at those kids in that trash can looking back up at me and I thought, if that was my kid, I would go to the ends of the earth to find them. If that was my kid, I would quit my job, and I would spend every day of my life going around and asking everybody I could find, have you seen this child? Have you seen this child? Have you seen this child? And I realized that's how God sees all of us. God looks at all of us and realizes we are lost children who are running away, who are living broken lives in a broken world. And he crossed the universe to come and find us, to live among us as one of us in Jesus of Nazareth, so that we could be found, so that we could reunite with him, so that he could save us and take us home. Jesus looks at us like that all the time. And so I want you to spend time this week just contemplating what you look like through the eyes of Jesus. Are you sure you want to live with guilt and shame? Because Jesus calls you forgiven. He died so that you would not carry that shame. Are you sure you want to poison your body with addictive substances because Jesus calls you precious? Are you sure you still want to go running back to the kinds of brokenness that you know are not good for you because Jesus calls you pure? You are not an orphan. You are a child of the house of God and you are an heir to the whole estate and nothing will ever change that. Take time this week and contemplate what you look like through the eyes of Jesus. And then secondly, I want you to take time this week and contemplate what other people look like through the eyes of Jesus. Uh, And I have some bad news for you here. That person who you totally hate, who's a total jerk to you, the boss at work who's condescending and obnoxious, the person who cut you off in the freeway, God feels about all of them the way God feels about you. And at that moment where you want to flip them off or walk past them and ignore them or vent at them, God feels about them the way God feels about you. Every single one of us is a cherished and lost child of God that he is after. And when I go to insult someone because I'm mad at them, God feels about my insulting them the way any father would feel about someone insulting their child. Jesus cherishes broken and lost people despite the fact that we are lost and broken. And if we wanna follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we're gonna have to spend a lot of time looking at other people, and particularly those people that we do not like, and particularly those people who do not deserve to be liked, and realize they are cherished children of our Father. That's your homework assignment for the week. Spend time looking at yourself, looking at your reflection in Jesus' eyes and then spend time looking at other people through the eyes of Jesus. And I don't need to give you any more homework than that, because if I can get you to do that, I've given you something eternal, and it cannot be taken from you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the way you look at us, for the way you cherish us, for the way you love us. And I thank you that you have the power to work inside of our rage and our resentments, to work love and forgiveness inside of us so that we might see one another the way you see us. Teach us to look at the world through your eyes and know that it's the only thing that matters. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.